So we're looking at that amazing passage of Christ's humility, and the Apostle Paul is going to apply that to us as we work through this epistle and learn what it is to live life in Christ and how we relate to one another. And really, Christ is, is, is our example. He's, he's the pinnacle of what it is to live the Christian life. The Christian life is to be Christ-like, and daily as you walk with the Lord, the Lord by his Spirit is making you more like Christ. As we see his image you know, in a mirror, in a sense, we're being changed more and more into that likeness by the power of the Spirit. So there's hope for us. We're works in progress, and God will complete his good work that he has begun in us, as Paul said as he began this epistle. So let's pray, and let's see what the Lord will have for us tonight. Father, we, Lord, just pause from, from worship, Lord, to worship you in a uh, different way, Lord, by being attentive to your word. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us through the songs. Lord, as you move our hearts and Lord, remind us of all the great things you have done for us, Lord. And I pray that, Lord, as we get into your word now, that you would move our hearts. And that, Lord, as we spend time in worship, that through, Lord, that from your word, that we'd be moved to um, speak to one another, Lord, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow us and, and change us. And, Lord, speak to us that message that you'll have for us through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm calling this study tonight, Follow the Leader. Now, what are the qualities of a great leader? Well, according to Forbes.com, in an, idol, in an article they titled, 10 Qualities That Make a Great Leader, here's some of the things that they listed. Number one, honesty. The ability to delegate, which is always good, right? You do that. Communication. Confidence. Commitment. A positive attitude. Creativity, intuition, the ability to inspire, and the ability to relate to people. Now, I think Forbes could have simplified and not have to write such a long, boring article if they could have just said, look to Jesus Christ. I mean, hey, just look to Jesus. You want to know what it is to be a great leader? Look to Jesus. I mean, you can find a lot of great leaders in the Bible. I mean, the Bible's filled with with men that, that God has used to, uh, to be leaders. I mean, think about Abraham. I mean, he had 318 trained servants. I mean, he, he was the man. I mean, Moses, I mean, he led the children of Israel, millions of people, just a humble man. God used um, Daniel there in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. As Nebuchadnezzar ruled the known world. God raised Daniel up. Nehemiah, he worked there in the Persian Empire and then we see the greatest example of a leader, Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at Jesus' life, one of the greatest examples that we see of him and one of the greatest characteristics that we see of him is the fact that he was humble. And we're told that of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Here's what Jesus said of himself. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And so Jesus said, if you want to describe me, if you want to describe my leadership qualities, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, the word gentle is, our, is the same word that we use for meek. Now, don't think that meekness is weakness. It's not. But rather, the word meek means strength under control. And Jesus was God. He is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. But yet, when he came to this earth as a man, he was willing to submit to his Father's will. It was perfect strength under control. I love that passage 
when Jesus is you know, talking to Peter and his disciples there in the garden, he says, hey, if I wanted to, I can call down legions of angels right now and wipe these guys out. Or there when he's in, talking to Pilate, you know, he's, he's beaten, he's mocked and spit upon. He says, hey, you know, you have your authority because my father allows you to have it. You know, and so, you know, so Jesus had total strength under control. You know, if he wanted to, he can call down legions of angels, but rather he chose to continue to be submitted to his father's will. Jesus also called himself lowly of heart. Now, in contrast to the proud scribes and Pharisees, and, you know, and the Sadducees, these guys who exalted themselves above people, they desired to follow their own ways, make up their own rules. Jesus was the exact opposite. He was humble. Now, it's important to note that humility did not originate in emo music. <laughs> you know, not Elmo music, but emo music. Humility is not self-mutilation or self-bashing. You know, that's often what we think of humility. Well, I'm just, a, you know, I'm just nothing, but I want everybody to tell me that I'm actually pretty good, you know? No, but rather, the correct definition of, of humility is a proper evaluation of yourself before God. That's what true humility is is to truly understand who God is and who you are in his sight and how God wants you to live. Now, Vincent, and the Vincent Word Studies, who lived long before emo music, wrote this concerning the Greek word that Matthew used for the word lowly. Listen to what he says. It's kind of a long quote, but it's, it's a good one. He says, the word for the Christian virtue of humility was not used before the Christian era and is distinctly an outgrowth of the gospel. This virtue is based upon a correct estimate of our actual littleness and is linked with a sense of sinfulness. True greatness is holiness. We are little because, um, because we're sinful. Now it is asked how in this view of the case or, or the word can be applied to, him, um, to the Lord himself because he's sinless. The answer is, as Archbishop Trent says, that, the, that for the sinner, humility involves the confession of sin in as much as it involves the confession of his true condition. While yet for the unfallen creature, the grace itself as truly exists, involving uh, for such the acknowledgement, not of sinfulness, which would be untrue, but of creatureliness, of, depend, uh, of absolute dependence, of having nothing but receiving all things of God. And thus the grace of humility belonged to the highest angel before the throne, being as he is a creature, yea, even the Lord of glory himself. In his human nature, he must be the pattern of all humility, of all creaturely dependence. And it is only as a man that Christ thus claims to be lowly. In his human life was a constant living on the fullness of the Father's love. He evermore as a man took the place which beseemed the creature in the presence of his creator. Like, what did you just say? <laughs> so basically what he's saying is this, is that you and I are humble because we recognize that we're sinners before God. I, I feel like, you know, off, you know, the movie Hook, you know, when Captain Hook speaks that and he says, Smee, explain it, you know? It's like, you know, Smee explains it kind of thing. I mean, it's like, what is he talking about? And so, you know, and so here he is. We're humble before God because we're sinners and we recognize the fact that God is holy. But when, as it relates to Christ, he's humble because of his humanness, the fact that he became a man. And the fact that he lived to be submissive to the Father and to be totally committed to the Father's will. And, and that is what the true basis and definition of humility is. Jesus was humble because he chose to leave his exalted place in heaven 
and to be submitted to the Father's will. Now, the Apostle Paul takes this, this definition of humility and puts it in context of the church in our passage this evening. Paul says, you want to learn what it is to live in unity, to live in fellowship? Well, it's to live humbly. It's to look to Christ's example, to realize who you are in the sight of God, right? And to, and to realize who, you know, who God is and how he wants us to live. And then he applies that to Christ and saying, hey, look, well, look at Christ. He took up a human nature and he was willing to live submitted to the Father. And so as we work through this text tonight and we look at humility, we're gonna apply four things to our life. And the first thing we learn is in verse five, we see that humility begins with a correct mindset. That's where it all begins. It begins with this correct mindset. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this passage, we all know, is used in doctrine, right? It's used in theology to describe what we call the incarnation of Christ. The word incarnation means to become flesh. And so God became a man. That's what we call the incarnation. And this passage is really one of the greatest texts in the Bible to describe that. Now, while this passage has a lot of teaching for us about Jesus and about the fact that God became a man, the context is given to believers in the relationship of a church. The church in Philippi was struggling with division. And so Paul wrote to clear up this issue by encouraging them to live humbly and to look to Jesus as their example on how they were to do it. And the main issue was that they were putting each other, and that they weren't putting others before themselves. They were putting themselves above others. Look at verse two through four. Paul says this. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so these believers were to walk in unity simply by living in humility. The greatest example of that is our leader, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says this humility begins with a mindset or a correct attitude. And we know that the basis of this humility, this attitude that Jesus has, was based on truth. It's based upon love, mercy, and grace. As the council of the Trinity, you know, decided this, you know, this plan to redeem mankind and Jesus, out of his love and mercy and grace, chose to surrender himself and come to this earth. Out of his love, he left his throne in heaven. To walk in humility and to love others begins with putting on the mind of Christ to have the correct attitude. Now, as a Christian, we can put on the mind of Christ. An unbeliever can't do this. They have no power to do this. But as you receive Christ in your life, as you're in Christ, the Lord will give you the power to do it. And we're commanded to do this. Listen to what Paul told the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter three, verses 12 through 15. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But, of all these, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So the Colossians needed the same encouragement as the church in Philippi, as all churches do. Why? Because they're filled with sinners who are saved by grace. We need that continued reminder, hey, 
put on Christ. And what happens when you put on Christ? Well, you put on love. You put on humility. And these are the basis for walking in unity as we function as a body. So we can be glorifying to God as, you know, so we can worship God in, in one accord. In contrast to putting on Christ is to put on the flesh. Right? You have that choice. What am I going to wear today? Am I going to wear the flesh? Or am I going to put on Christ? The flesh produces the sinful mind. And that's what Paul described in the previous verses. It's interesting that the word selfish ambition that Paul used in verses 2 through 4 is the same word that he used in Galatians 5 when he said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, you know, and he goes on. But before that, he said, but the works of the flesh are evident. And one of those works of the flesh, which reveal the walking of the flesh, is selfish ambition. And so it's really the fruit of the flesh. So, and if you put on that outfit, it's not going to be good, you know. If you put on the flesh, you're going to end up walking in selfish ambition. You're going to end up walking in pride. It's going to be a divider, not something that unifies you in the body of Christ. Now, this evil mind finds its root in Satan. He's the really one of the designers of this clothing line. He is one of the first people that we see wearing this in the Bible. And we see that in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Called Lucifer in Isaiah 14 because he wanted to exalt himself and, and be like Jesus. We're told that he was an anointed cherub. He was one of the class of angels which were around the throne of God. And he had this prominent position of being able to worship God before his throne. Well, he began being lifted up in pride. And there he used the five I will statements, right? I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the most high. So in his heart, he began being lifted up and he began thinking about this and he began exercising his pride. And because of that, he was, he was set down. He was cast out of heaven. And then he seduced one-third of the angels to follow his example. And they also followed him. He came down to earth and what did he do? He tempted Eve. He tempted Eve to put on the mind of the flesh. And it was Eve's choice. He said, hey, did God say this? Did God say that? He questioned the word of God. And then what did he do? He says, hey, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. There it is. There's the pride. And, you know, and, so, and so once again, it begins with the attack of the mind. And that's where the battle begins. The battle always begins in the mind and it begins in the heart. Lucifer's battle began in the heart. He could have chose to say no, but rather he chose to be lifted up in pride. The third of the angels who fell, they, choose, you know, they could have chose to re, uh, reject Satan's offer and remained as the, the good angels did, if there's you know, not a better word for it. You know, the, people who, the angels who followed God, the good angels. Eve, she had the power to say no to the enemy. And then Adam had the power to say no to you know, his wife and, and when she fell into sin and not eat it. And the same for you and I. As believers, we have the power to say no to the flesh. Through the fact that we're born again, the old man has been crucified with Christ, and now we have the power of the Spirit to reckon that old man dead, to, to put to death the works of the flesh. And so if we're to walk in humility, it begins in the heart. It begins in the mind. We must guard our hearts, guard our minds, and beware of any influences that would seek to influence us to walk in the flesh. There's always subtle influence, especially living in the world, right? We live in a material world, 
and, and you know, in, in a world that is exalted on pride and, and, and ego and, and self, selfish ambition. I mean, it's a motivator of the world. You know, some of these motivational conferences and things you see for business, it's all about it. Motivation to, to strive after self. And the Bible says that we need to reject these things. Rather, we need to train our mind to think biblically, to think like Christ. And the only way to do that is through the word, through the word of God. As we are, our mind is renewed daily, as we're in the word, looking at Christ, following his example. The culture might change, but the word of God doesn't. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, second, in verse six, we're taught that humility is to walk submitted to the will of God, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus' humility is demonstrated in the fact that while he was in the form of God, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. The word form, I'm told, comes from a word that stresses in the inner essence or reality of that which, is, that, that which is associated to. And so Jesus being the form of God means that by his very nature or essence, he is God. Now, here's a doctrinal question. How could Jesus and the Father both be called God at the same time? The cults have problems with this. They say, well, wait a second. Jesus is the son of God. He's not God. So therefore, oh, I know. He's a created person. The Mormons say, well, he's a created God. He's, he's just a, kind of a little God with a smaller G, as everyone else says. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, yeah, he's kind of a God-ish. He's actually Michael the Archangel. And, but, he, you know, but the Father honors him above all other angels, and he actually calls him his son when he comes to the earth. Well, none of these things are true. Others teach, well, there's a person, God, and he actually wears three different masks. He was the Father, he changed into the Son, and then he changed into the Spirit at different times. Well, all these things are false. Rather, the Bible teaches what we call the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. It shouldn't come as a shock to us. You will not find the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's a word that we use to describe the fact that there is one God who exists in three persons. The word inerrant is not found in the Bible either, but we believe it because the Bible teaches that it's pure, right? And that it's from God and God can't err or lie or make a mistake. And so the word Trinity is just a word that we use to describe who God is. So if you can find a better word for it, then go for it. You can say triunity or the Godhead, you know, whatever word you want to use, but it's just a way that we describe the teaching of God. The doctrine of the Trinity, very simply, is based on the fact that the Bible teaches that there is one God. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. James says, you believe in one God? Well, you do well. And so there's, it, the Bible's very clear that there's one God, but yet this one God is revealed in the Bible as three persons. Each person is seen eternal, equal in nature. That means that they share the same attributes and characteristics. And also they coexist at the same time. An example of this is in Matthew 16, or uh, 3.16, excuse me, when Jesus was baptized. There we're told that the son was getting baptized, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove upon him, and then the father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All three persons are called God in the Bible. The father is called God, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus called himself God in John 8.58, I am the name of God. He also said, I'm the first and the last, the same as Jehovah said in Isaiah 44, 6. And the Spirit is called God in Acts chapter 5. 
When Peter said, you have not lied to you know, um, man, you've lied to God, talking about the Holy Spirit. And so each of these persons is called God. They have emotions, right? They have a will and they have intelligence. And so this is what the Bible describes about God. No, wait, is that three gods? No, it's one God and three persons. How does that work? Well, the Bible tells us how it works. We trust it and we believe it and we'll find out when we get to heaven. All right, it's one of these truths that, that we accept. Now I point this out because it really brings out the fact that Christ did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Scholars say a better way to understand this phrase is to, um, to say that Christ did not consider it something to be held onto as far as his position you know, and his place in heaven. So what Paul is saying is even though Jesus was equal to God, even though he is of the same nature as the Father, he did not hesitate or seek to hold on to his position in heaven. He did not demand his rights to remain in heaven. He didn't go to the Godhead union and say, hey, wait a second. You know, I think the spirit should go kind of thing. I don't want to be irreverent, all right? So, I mean, but, you know, so, I mean, so he didn't demand his rights, but rather he chose the humble position, even though he was equal to the Father, and choose to come to this earth, Humility is to accept and walk in God's will for our lives. Rather than seek to demand our rights, we need to follow Jesus' example and walk in humility. If there was any person who could have demanded his rights, it could have been Jesus, right? But Jesus didn't. He chose submission. And submission finds its greatest example in Jesus. Submission is not being less than something it's recognizing your position in what God wants you to do. And that's the true definition of, of submission. Jesus was not less than the Father. He's equal to the Father in his essence, in his nature, but yet he's submitted to the Father because of his position, because of his willingness to be submissive. Well, how does that apply to us? Well, think about husbands and wives. The Bible says, submit to one another in the fear of God. Right? And so we, we're, we're, we're both to submit in, in the fear of God to one another. Wives are said to submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that the wife is inferior to the husband. We're all equal in Christ. Neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. We're all one in Christ. We're all equal in Christ. Men are not more spiritual women. We all know that kind of thing. But yet, there is, there is a order that which God has established that women are to submit to their husbands and respect him. And then husbands... We have a big responsibility. We're to love them as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? Christ submitted himself to the church and laid down his life for the church. So there's that submission. It's not because one is greater than the other. It's because we're submitting to the will of God. Employers, employees, we're to submit to our masters. And that doesn't mean our, your boss is greater than you. He might be an immoral person. But yet in the order that God has established, you're to submit to the government your president or your leaders might not be greater than you in their morality and in their character, but yet we're to submit to the government because the government has been established by God. All these things are based upon the fact that Christ is humble and he submitted to us. And then Christians were to take this out into the world and we're to submit. And the world looks at that and think, that's not natural. That's supernatural. And the reason we do that is because Christ has given this example to follow. So submission is to follow God's will. 
Third, in verses seven through eight, we learn that humility finds its proper place in serving God. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So Jesus made himself of no reputation or he emptied himself. If you read this passage before, you know people call it the kenosis. Ooh. You know, it means he emptied himself. Now the phrase emptied himself simply means that he humbled himself. It doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. Jesus has never ceased to be God. He's, he is God. He will always be God. But the fact that Christ emptied himself or, or um, submitted himself is seen in the fact that he became a man and the fact that he became a servant. And that's really what Paul's talking about here. How did he empty himself? Well, he became a man. He became a servant. First, let's talk about how Christ emptied himself by becoming a man. By Jesus becoming a man means that he added a human nature to his divine nature. Therefore, when Jesus came to this earth, he was fully God and fully man, the two natures of Christ. So he didn't lose his divine nature. He only added a human nature to his divine. And so Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. His divine nature and human nature never mixed, but he was one person with two natures. Now, in becoming a man, he was found, notice, in the likeness as a man. This means that Jesus experienced everything that a human does. He was born, he grew up, he experienced what humans, um, what humans do, such as having hunger, thirst, sadness, even temptation. Now, while he experienced all these things, the Bible says he was tempted in all points, but yet without sin. Christ never experienced the guilt of sinning because he was sinless. Now, he did take our punishment for us on the cross, but yet Christ never sinned. He was only our substitution for sin, our, our sacrifice for sin. Now, not only did Jesus become a man, he became a bondservant of God. He emptied himself to be submitted to the Father. Now, a bondservant has no rights. A bondservant forfeits their rights to their master, and that's coming from the Old Testament. Right? When a person served their master for six years, according to the law of Moses, they could go free. But everything that they had and gained while under that master must remain under that master's control. Now, that person can choose to forfeit all their rights and to serve their master for life by choosing to become a bondservant, and they would pierce their ear and they would become a bondservant forever. And this is what Jesus did, Paul said. He became a bondservant. What does that mean? He forfeited all of his rights as God. He forfeited the, um, you know, the, the fact that he was God and the fact that he could use his attributes as he desired. He forfeited that. Rather, he chose to um, not use the independent use of his attributes. Rather, he chose to, chose to live totally submitted and surrendered to the Father to be led by him, to be empowered by him, and to um, speak when he wanted to speak and, and, and work when he wanted to uh, work. So that, that is what it is to live as a bondservant, to empty himself. He, he forfeited these rights. Now, Jesus did this in order to fulfill the will of God. He knew that this was necessary, the greatest good for mankind, so he chose it. But also, he did this so we can have an example, so those who follow him and believe in him can have an example to live by and, and this is really our greatest example of what it is to walk in humility, is to recognize that my life is no longer my own, that everything I have belongs to God. I have forfeited my rights. 
Any person who demands his rights is no longer walking in humility. Kind of a big thing to think about, that Christ wants me to follow his example and be a bondservant, I think. Okay, I'll give God these things, but then I want to keep these other things for myself. And that's not what a bondservant was. A bondservant has forfeited everything to the total control of their master, to where when they wake up in the morning, they're going to do what their master says. Now, it's not something to be sad about. It's something to be happy about because we have a good master. And our, our life is, is blessed in Christ. And our life is filled and, and, and full of joy um, in Christ. And so, so the Lord wants our life. He wants our heart. We have surrendered our life to him and he wants to lead and guide us. He wants to use us for his glory and for our good. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So not only was Jesus willing to submit to the Father's will and serve him, but Jesus was willing to submit to the Father's will and even lay down his life on the cross. Everybody knows that the cross was horrible. It's one of the worst forms of death there is. They even made a word for it, excruciating. And that word was designed to describe the death on the cross. The Romans wouldn't even crucify their own citizens. You had to be a non-Roman in order to be crucified. It was a painful death, a slow death that a person would continue to live um, you know, for sometimes even a couple days um, while they die. But yet Christ was willing to submit to this death. Not only the death on the cross, but the fact that he would become a substitute and sacrifice for us. The fact that Jesus would bear the full cup of, of God's wrath. And that's what Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, if there's any other way for this cup to pass, you know, let it pass. But he said, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That cup was the cup of God's wrath. The fact that when Christ died on the cross, God placed the sins of the world upon Christ and he became our substitute, our sacrifice for our sin. He was judged in our place. As we talk about the Lamb of God, we think, well, the Lamb of God, what's that all about? Well, in the Old Testament, they would bring a lamb or an offering to the priests and there that lamb or that offering would die in the place of the sinner. And that's what Jesus was. He was our lamb. He died in our place to take our punishment so we can go free, so we can be forgiven. Jesus, knowing this, was even willing to submit and surrender to the Father's will. And this is our example. Fourth and finally, in verses nine through 11, we see that God is glorified through our humility. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those that are on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that there are two types of people uh, on this earth. Those who bow the knee and say, thy will be done, and those in the end who bow the knee to God, and he says, your will be done. Everybody has a choice. God, by his grace, has allowed us to make that choice. We can either choose to bow our knee to Christ and submit to the Father's will, or in the end, every creature will bow the knee to Christ, but yet God will give them what their free will has chosen, the fact that they chose to reject Christ. God will force nobody to go to heaven. Their will will be done. Mankind, as I said, by God's grace, has been given this ability, and as a Christian, we have been given the ability to choose. Are we going to choose to follow the Father's will, or are we going to choose to follow our own will? Now, if we choose to follow God's will, there's joy in it. 
and there's blessing in it. God exalts the humble, but he puts down the proud, right? God gives grace to the humble. That is those who submit to Christ. God will bless. One of the ways that God will bless is will rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. You might not know this, but every day you live on this earth, you're having actually a performance interview. <laughs> you know, you're deciding your position in the kingdom. What's God looking for? You know, what are the qualifications to get you know, that position in the kingdom? Well, the Lord says it's faithfulness, but specifically faithfulness and humility. As we walk in humility to God, loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving others as ourselves. In the end, as we walk in this grace, we'll be blessed that we did as we walk in this humility. While the, while the world mocks God in, in being proud, if we will bow the knee to Jesus now, we'll rule and reign with him in his kingdom in the future. Amen.